The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. What do you see when you look out there? The Lorenzi cluster, and there's Arnab, and there's Epsilon Indy. It's not what I mean. I mean, when you look out there, don't you see your future? It'll still be there. What about a cup of nectar direct from Prometheus? No, nothing. That's the third time you've asked me. It's what I'm expected to do. Don't you always do what's expected? I try. Even if it's not what you really want? Sometimes. Sometimes it's more important to consider others before yourself. Yes. But sometimes the game is to know when to consider yourself before others. Give yourself permission to be selfish. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, September 18, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to the show this morning here at CHRW 94.9 FM, where 519-661-3600 is the open line number you can call to get in touch with us during the show, or you can email us at justwritechrw at gmail.com, or of course visit our website with all our archives and connections to the show, even here at chrwradio.com, through justrightmedia.org. And today on the show, we're going to be talking about a number of things, including near the end, if I get to it, I want to talk about how health care is putting on the green shirt and, enjoy, and joining the, uh, the whole green movement. I want to talk a little bit about history repeating itself on the local level. Not even history, I, I would say uh, current events repeating themselves, because um, the Pan Am Games may be coming to southern Ontario. And uh, for those of you who don't know about that, I had some personal experience in that issue the last time we turfed them out here in the city. And some of the same players are in on it again today, but we'll be dealing with that after the first break. But first off, in the field of ethics and morality, I want to talk about an article that I ran across in the London Free Press. It's one of those things that I would say would uh, make Ayn Rand turn over in her grave two or three times. And it is rare that I run across an article or essay that's so thoroughly 100% the opposite of everything that I've come to believe and understand about basically ethics and morality. And the reason I feel com compelled to comment on this is that I know, both from my own experience and in talking to people out in the public, and I've spoken at a lot of schools dealing with this very issue, is that, you know, most people would regard... Um, you know, what this essay has to say, that the, the essay I'm about to read, as a highly moral and the very essence of good. And uh, I think that's the reason why the world is heading into kind of a new dark ages in the midst of our technological marvels. So it should come as no surprise that the article uh, should appear in the pages of the London Free Press and on the Ethics and Spirituality page of the paper, no less. And the headline reads, and it just stuck right out at me, I just couldn't ignore it, 
Mysticism, Science, and the Environment Become One. That was the headline in the London Free Press, September 13, in an article by Bruce Tallman, who is described as a London spiritual director. Now, I'm not here to pick on the writer of this, because I think he's expressing a point of view that may be even shared by most of you listening to this show. I don't know. So I might be swimming upstream on this one. But I hope I've brought my uh, usual ammunition with me in terms of trying to defend why I think that uh, the whole concept of selflessness is something that Ayn Rand called the greatest fraud ever perpetrated on mankind. But let's hear the argument for it, and let's see what uh, Bruce has to say about this particular issue. Quote, science has been telling us for some time now that, quote, all is one. Physics has shown that everything is energy and, and claims there is one universal energy, the unified field of which everything is a part. Astronomy knows everything came from one source, the Big Bang, and therefore everything is connected. Evolution tells us that all life forms are part of one tree of life. This is a radically different uh, from, uh, from the scientific worldview before Einstein. Newtonian science claimed that everything was distinct particles and that all is separate. And this has resulted in extreme individualism, the idea that each of us is separate from everyone else and that human beings are separate from nature. Ecological science has now identified the root of all of our environmental problems. If we continue to think we are separate from nature, we will continue to destroy the planet and therefore ourselves. If we don't realize that what we do to nature has an impact on us, we will continue to deplete and pollute the oceans, land, rainforests, and sky. Science is proclaiming what mystics in all religions have said for centuries, that all is one. And all religions have identified one spiritual source for all problems, the ego. The ego resists oneness with all its strength. In a new earth, Eckhart Tolle brilliantly analyzes how the ego works. It wants to be separate from and superior to others, and always wants more. One of the ego's main beliefs is that if I have more, I am superior to you. The ego thus drives mass consumption, which is the source of all our environmental problems. The environmental problem is therefore basically a spiritual problem. How do we cope with our egos and learn the oneness that Jesus and Buddha taught? Karl Rayner, arguably the greatest Catholic theologian of the 20th century, states... Quote, the Christian of the future will be a mystic or will not exist at all, end quote. The signs of the times are calling not just Christians, but all human beings to be mystics, to discover our oneness with God, others, and nature. The signs of the times are also that evolution is going to force us into the next spiritual level, to lose our egos or die as a species. We will either learn the easy way by making a conscious choice to let go of our egos and stop our wild consuming, or we will learn the hard way, through great suffering. Nature is already lashing us with floods, fires, tornadoes, earthquakes, hurricanes, tsunamis, and droughts. Cutting back to a far simpler environmentally sound lifestyle is not going to be easy. However, as Toll notes for most people, suffering is their greatest spiritual teacher. Our environmental problems are therefore a great spiritual opportunity to learn to be non-egoic <laughs> mystics, to learn the oneness of, of all things. I'm, I'm having a hard time not laughing through this, but th these guys are serious. All human beings are being called by God and forced by nature to embrace the ancient religious worldview and the new scientific worldview that all is one. We are all being called to become mystics as a solution 
to our environmental problems, end quote. And that's the article that appeared in the London Free Press, the most of it almost. I only cut out a few sentences that were kind of repetitive. Now, you know, even looking at the f his stated facts in the argument, so many things, I, I could take every sentence and just point out how incorrect or at least not determined a lot of those things are. Science has not been telling us anything about all is one. Science is a fragmented study of nature. It's not the thing that speaks to the whole, the all is one, is called philosophy. That's what we talk about on this show. Science does not tell us that. The fact that you know what a scientific principle will not tell you anything about the whole. You have to put the pieces together, and it takes a human mind to do that. Um, you know, and physics, he says, has shown that everything is one universal energy of the unified field. Well, I picked up my Einstein book, A Relative History, which just came out a couple of years ago, and I quote, Despite the scientific indefensibility of aesthetic decisions, it was just such a sense that led Einstein to a long and arduous and, un and ultimately unsuccessful task, a unified field theory. So basically, no, we haven't figured that one out yet either. And, you know, he says everything comes from one source, the Big Bang. Astronomy tells us this, you know. But actually, from what I've been reading, it seems that the steady-state theory, theory is regaining uh, credibility over the Big Bang theory again. After being abandoned once following the discovery of microwave radiation, which seemed to indicate that the universe must have been much denser in the past. Uh, but that's a subject for another day. We've talked about that in the past, too. And, of course, they talked about Newtonian science and referred to how Einstein went, came back to this religious understanding of things, which is actually not true. Einstein was an atheist, and in fact, he could not bring himself to believe that uh, there was chance in the universe. He used to say, using the figure, or the word God in, in, a, in a symbolic sense, he said, God does not throw dice, and um, went, died believing that. He just couldn't believe in the concept of indeterminate action at the quantum level. He figured that once we figured that all out, You'd, we would discover in the long term that everything is determinate again. But, uh, and again, when we talk about distinct particles and people being separate, that's the law of identity. It's a philosophical law, and one you need. It's a distinction being epistemological in nature, based on observation and, and on necessity and reality. We are distinct. A dog is a dog, a cat is a cat, a person is a person. To say they're all one is to negate their individual identities and what they are in relationship to each other. Why would someone want to do that? I, it just blows me away. And if the ego is our problem, you know, and he talks about we have to learn the oneness that Jesus and Buddha taught, well, you can only accomplish oneness through death, which is about as selfless as any of us will ever get. And whether Jesus taught oneness is very debatable, not certainly from anything I've read. In my entire Catholic upbringing, I don't recall a single parable emphasizing oneness in any way, shape, or form. And, uh, of course, you know, he says we should make conscious choice to let go of our egos. Well, if you did that, that would be the last time you got to make a conscious choice, because that's it. That's what ego is, is consciousness, is your making of choices. And then he says, you know, because we're gonna, if we don't do this, we're going to suffer, and nature's hitting us with floods, fires, tornadoes, earthquakes, and all that stuff. I'm telling you, blaming the weather on man's moral choices is about as primitive and mystical as you can get. It is completely uncivilized and irrational. I mean, to, to, to equate what the weather's doing with what you did last night because you did something bad, that's just so utterly primitive it's hard to even relate to it. So you can see why I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for this article. You know, the abstract 
concept of oneness is not a mystical concept. It's merely abstract. It's, it's not a supernatural concept, and above all, it does not demand selflessness uh, or mysticism, but quite the opposite. And to speak to that subject, I will quote from Ayn Rand, who, of course, was well known for swimming upstream with her philosophy because she was basically saying, look, the world's going wrong because of this very thing. And she blamed it on altruism and the belief in selflessness and stuff like that. And she says that's what led the country she came from to its disaster, which was um, the Soviet Union. Most of us think of people in uh, totalitarian countries as being, oh, selfish, and, you know, taking things to themselves when really their countries are based on a completely opposite um, ethical system, which is selflessness. That's why in a, in a you know, communist country, theoretically, you don't own anything. The state owns everything. You're part of that whole. And that is why the people who promote this kind of stuff are generally coming from the left and communistic points of view to begin with. But Ayn Rand wrote that the first right on, on earth is the right of the ego. Man's first duty is to himself. His moral law is never to place his prime goal with the persons, uh, within the persons of others. His moral obligation is to do what he wishes, provided that his wish does not depend primarily upon others. This includes, and she, she stresses primarily, this includes the whole sphere of his creative faculty, his thinking, his work, but it does not include the sphere of the gangster, the altruist, or the dictator. A man thinks and works alone. A man cannot rob, exploit, or rule alone. Robbery, exploitation, and ruling presuppose victims. They imply dependence. They are the province of the second-hander. And she also referred to the second-hander as um, the parasite, which you'll hear in an upcoming uh, clip that we have from a movie. Rulers of men are not egoists. They create nothing. They exist entirely through the persons of others. Their goal is in their subjects, in the activity of enslaving. They are as dependent as the beggar, the social worker, and the bandit. You obviously didn't think much of social workers. The form of dependence does not matter. Men have been taught that the ego is the synonym of evil and selflessness the ideal of virtue. But the creator is the egoist in the absolute sense, and the selfless man is the one who does not feel, think, judge, or act, because these are functions of the self. And here the basic reversal is most deadly. The issue has been perverted, and man has been left no alternative and no freedom. As poles of good and evil, he was offered two conceptions, egoism and altruism. Egoism was held to mean the sacrifice of others to the self, altruism the sacrifice of self to others. This tied man irrevocably to other men and left him nothing but a choice of pain. His own pain, born for the sake of others, or the pain inflicted upon others for the sake of self. When it was added that man must find joy in self-immolation, the trap was closed. Man was forced to accept masochism as his ideal under the threat that sadism was his only alternative. This was the greatest fraud ever perpetrated on mankind. This was the device by which dependence and suffering were perpetuated as fundamentals of life. The choice is not self-sacrifice or domination. The choice is independence or dependence. The code of the creator or the code of the second-hander? This is the basic issue. It rests upon the alternative of life or death. The code of the creator is built on the needs of the reasoning mind, which allows man to survive. The code of the second-hander is built on the needs of a mind incapable of survival. 
All that which proceeds from man's independent ego is good. All that which proceeds from man's dependence upon others is evil. The egoist, is the, in the absolute sense, is not the man who sacrifices others. He is the man who stands above the need of using others in any manner. He does not function through them. He is not concerned with them in any primary way. Not in his aim, not in his motive, not in his thinking, not in his desires, not in the source of his energy. He does not exist for any other person, and he asks no other to exist for him. This is the only form of brotherhood and mutual respect possible between men. End quote. To which I say, uh, you know, amen. That's, there's a perfect example. And you can see the contrast in terms of what Ayn Rand represented versus the prevailing um, moral code that we are basically operating society on. We're seeing the results of it all around us. All our world problems are not caused by the ego, but by the lack of it. Isn't that interesting? Now, she referred to second-hander in this uh, sense, but uh, as you'll hear in the next movie clip, which is coming up right now, and it's from The Fountainhead, with Gary Cooper, of course, playing Howard Rourke. I think this is out of the court case uh, part where he was in the court. He was an architect and got into trouble. And um, for those of you who know about that story, you can either check out the movie, which personally wasn't that great a movie, but the book was absolutely great. I think it's my favorite of, the, of Ayn Rand's novels. So we'll take a break, and when we come back, we're going to change the subject entirely when we go talk about the Pan Am Games, but we'll leave you with this, and we'll be back in a few moments. Man cannot survive except through his mind. He comes on Earth unarmed. His brain is his only weapon. But the mind is an attribute of the individual. There is no such thing as a collective brain. The man who thinks must think and act on his own. The reasoning mind cannot work under any form of compulsion. It cannot be subordinated to the needs, opinions, or wishes of others. It is not an object of sacrifice. The creator stands on his own judgment. The parasite follows the opinions of others. The creator thinks. The parasite copies. The creator produces. The parasite loots. The creator's concern is the conquest of nature. The parasite's concern is the conquest of man. The creator requires independence. He, he neither serves nor rules. He deals with men by free exchange and voluntary choice. The parasite seeks power. He wants to bind all men together in common action and common slavery. He, he claims that man is only a tool for the use of others. That he must think as they think, act as they act, and live in selfless, joyless servitude to any need but his own. Look at history. Everything we have, every great achievement has come from the independent work of some independent mind. Every horror and destruction came from attempts to force men into a herd of brainless, soulless robots without personal rights, without personal ambition, without will, hope, or dignity. It is an ancient conflict it has another name, the individual against the collective. Good afternoon. Wide World of Sports is in the Little Republic of San Marcos where we're going to bring you a live, on-the-spot assassination. 
They're going to kill the president of this lovely Latin American country and replace him with a military dictatorship. And everybody is about as excited and tense as can be. The weather on this Sunday afternoon is perfect, and if you've just joined us, we've seen a series of colorful riots that started with the traditional bombing of the American embassy, a ritual as old as the city itself. Following that, the leader of the labor union, Julio Doaz, was dragged from his home and beaten by an angry mob. It was one of the most exciting spectacles I've ever seen. We'll probably have a videotape replay of that later on. All around, there are colorful flags and hats. And now the moment we've been waiting for is here. Everyone is getting quiet. And we're back. Welcome back. It's Just Right. I'm Bob Metz, and this is CHRW 94.9 FM, where 519-661-3600 is a number you can call to join us. Pan Am Games resurrected. Let the games begin again. Talk about history repeating itself. I just about fell off my chair when I read a few months ago the following article, quote, Flaherty backs Pan Am bid in the London Free Press July 20th under the Sun Media. Ottawa, Federal Finance Minister Jim Flaherty is so keen for Canada to host the Pan Am Games, he'll personally lobby his cabinet colleagues to agree to provide funding for the event, Sun Media had learned. A government source said Flaherty's a strong supporter of Canada's bid and will make a convincing case to get other ministers on board late this summer or early fall, that's about now, when the issue comes before cabinet. Of course, there's an election on right now. Ontario Premier Dalton McGuinty has asked Prime Minister Stephen Harper to make a decision about whether he will support the bid by the end of June. Now, of course, this was written in, uh, in back in uh, June, oh, June, that would be June of next year. Oh, got it. The Ontario Liberal government, which put together a business plan for the Golden Horseshoe region to host the 2015 Games and submitted it to Ottawa support, for support, will likely be buoyed by the news the finance minister is firmly on board. The Ontario government plan estimates the games will cost, get this, will cost Canadians $1.77 billion. The proposal is for the cities around the Golden Horseshoe and the provincial and federal governments to split the cost three ways. That means the federal government's share would be about $600 million. The Ontario government says it's worth the investment because the games will provide a boost of just over $2 billion to the Ontario economy. Well, that's funny. It's about the same amount of money that they're spending in taxes from 2010 to 2015, and create, here's that word create, think about what that means in the context of the clip we just had before, more than 14,000 jobs. What that means is they're going to take away the equivalent of 14,000 jobs from the people who already have them and give them to people who don't. That's how that works. Another London Free Press article, September 11th last week, David Peterson named to hit to lead 2015 Pan Am bid. Isn't that history repeating itself? David Peterson was here in town when they tried it here on us. And this was out of Toronto. Former Ontario Premier David Peterson was officially named to lead Southern Ontario's bid for the 2015 Pan American Games yesterday and said that winning the right to hold the event could lead to another shot at hosting the Olympics. A successful campaign to bring the Pan Am Games to Toronto and at least 11 other municipalities in southern Ontario's Golden Horseshoe region would leave both a lasting impression and future sporting opportunities for the province, Peterson said. Peterson, who will not be paid for his services, was London Centre MPP when he served as Ontario Premier between 1985 and 90. He was also involved in Toronto's unsuccessful bids for the 96 and 2008 Olympics. 
I also didn't mention that during that period of 1985 or 90, he's also uh, lost the bid for the Pan Am Games here in London, thanks to myself and another fellow named Mark Emery. Uh, and we'll be telling you all about that and letting you hear in, listen in on that shortly. In addition to the honor of hosting the Pan Am Games and getting its infrastructure spin-offs, McGinty told reporters at the Ontario Legislature that a successful bid would be a boost for the residents across the province. We went after the Olympic bid and we came up short, he said. We need to know we can come together. I think there's an important psychological dimension to this. Ah, psychology, see? If the Southern Ontario bid gets the green light, officials estimate the Pan Am Games could generate close to $2 billion. Well, that's the exact amount of the taxes they're, be- they're spending, $1.7 billion. So they, c- they can almost generate the equivalent amount in economic activity. Create, there, there they go again, create 17,000 jobs and attract 250,000 visitors. A decision to ho- on the host of the 2015 Pan Am Games is expected no later than October 2009. Now here's one out of the National Post. Little remains of Pan Am legacy, reads the headline on August 19th. Winnipeggers shortchanged as games hosts. As Toronto attempts to encourage the Pan American Sports Organization to bring the Pan Am games to the region, here's a word of caution, says the author. If someone like a mayor or a premier says, quote, imagine the wonderful legacy these games will leave, be skeptical. Those were the words uttered by Winnipeg Mayor Susan Thompson six years before the 1999 Pan Am Games arrived. These days, if you look around the city, there isn't much of a legacy. In the end, the federal and provincial governments spent $130 million in public money to have the Pan Am Games in Winnipeg in 1999. Ten years later, there's virtually nothing to show for it. If one was to ask, on an investment of $130 million, what did we get for it? Most people would be hard-pressed to come up with a significant list, Winnipeg Mayor Sam Katz said. As it is, the 99 games were great games, lots of fun, but 10 years later, if you walk or drive around Winnipeg, you won't see any kind of legacy. Edmonton and Calgary both received the legacy from the games they held, but Winnipeg, not much to show for it, end quote. Now, the Post article goes on to suggest that Winnipeg's particular problems were caused by the city's own mismanagement and failure to to plan for the future so as to have a visible legacy. Uh, For example, when the 99 games ended, nobody wanted the responsibility of maintaining the portable velodrome, so it was packed up and they shipped it it off to the Netherlands. So uh, no more velodrome, no more cyclists. And the city actually tore down a permanent cycling velodrome built for the 1967 Pan Am Games and replaced it with the portable velodrome that ended up in the Netherlands. They upgraded a Pan Am pool built back in 1967, but, quote, a load of dough was spent upgrading the Winnipeg Stadium, now Canada Inn Stadium, to turn bleacher seats into seats so uncomfortable that if you are more than 6 foot or 190 pounds, you can barely fit into them, end quote. But this story obscures the total picture of the real legacy of hosting games, be they Pan Am, Olympic, or any other grand sporting event. I've had a great deal of personal experience with this issue since I was the chairman of the No Tax for Pan Am committee back in the days when liberals David Peterson and Joan Smith, in the mid-1980s, were pushing London to spend $110 million to host the 1991 Pan Am Games. Now, our chair was going to be around $10 million plus. Now, we won that battle, believe it or not, back then. So, uh, before I continue and tell you the rest of the story, we'll go into the history of that. But uh, we're going to be taking a break now, so you can hear a couple of clips and listen to some very important ads. And the next voice you might, you'll hear might sound a little familiar. It was taken from a 2002 
uh, Rogers Cable broadcast of Jim Chapman Live. Remember, he had his show on cable, and where he was interviewing then, and I think for all I know still today, UWO professor Kevin Walmsley on Olympic game funding and, and what the history of funding of uh, games like this are. And, of course, at the time, they were anticipating the Beijing Olympics, which just wrapped up a couple of weeks ago. So here's that clip, and we'll take a break for a few minutes. And when we come back, by the way, on the other side, you will hear my voice and some other familiar voices. Uh, myself, Mark Emery, uh, Pat O'Brien, Orlando Zampronia, Gordon Hume, also from a tape way back in 1992. And then we'll pick that up on the other end of that. And we'll see you again in a couple of minutes. Is there any kind of consistent level of economic delivery associated with the Olympics? Are they always a win for the city, aside from people like the, the people of Innsbruck who said, we, we, we really don't want it, we don't care one way or the other, we don't want it. But if you get the Olympics, are you guaranteed of success? Not necessarily. We only have to look back as far as 1976 in our own country. This year, 2002, um, Quebec will be paying off the Olympic debt, over a billion dollars in Olympic debt. So, no, it's not guaranteed, but since 1976, the IOC has put all kinds of measure to, measures into place. They have uh, the Olympic Partners, the top program, and these are companies like Coca-Cola and McDonald's that pay 50 to $65 million over a four-year period to be the exclusive sponsors of the games worldwide. So there is that income for the games. There's also huge television contracts. Mm -hmm. The current one owned by NBC is for about $4.5 billion, which uh, runs out in 2008. Now, with respect to the cities who are clamoring to host the Olympic Games, um, certainly they receive unprecedented world attention. There's no doubt about that. Cumulative viewing figures for Atlanta, for example, were 19 billion who watched the Games, mm -hmm. you know, two, three times during the period that they were on. So, yes, your city is in the public eye. Calgary, for example, has turned itself into an Olympic city. And so... They receive money from television contracts, uh, from the top sponsorship programs, the, the first ones to really receive this kind of money, a huge television sponsorship, but also supplemented by anywhere from 509 to $550 million in public money. Mm -hmm. And they claimed a profit of, of $40 million. But that is not considering the $500 million in, in public support. Mm -hmm. Salt Lake City. Uh, received $1.5 billion in federal government support. And so while there is a claim on the balance sheet that there is, in fact, a profit, in actual fact, in most cases, uh, if you consider all of the public money, taxpayers' money that goes into the games, there's always a big deficit. But uh, how many sets of Olympic facilities, summer and winter, do we need around the world? I don't use them. Mm -hmm. I never will. Mm -hmm. The average person will never use them. I, I, th I honestly think that um, if we're going to cut back so far in the things that are really, really important to us, like health care and education, then we've got to take a good hard look at these, some of these huge expenditures that are flashy and spectacular. We began the first few years of Freedom Party simply outlining a basic strategy, recognizing fully that a political party like Freedom Party would likely not be electable for at least two decades or better. So we had to set out what kind of goals can we set for ourselves 
that would build our credibility, that would keep us active in the community. And so as a registered political party, we became sort of a lobby group. And uh, the very first campaign, in fact, that uh, Mark launched while Freedom Party was in existence was the No Tax for Pan Am campaign. Well, the Pan Am Games are a very major athletic competition, uh, just a slight step below the Olympics in importance. Really, the controversy became very simply, should we be expending local tax money on a major athletic event such as the, uh, the Pan Am Games? Uh, is that something that the public of London supported or not? What I believe to be the common feeling in the community is that we sh the city government should be concerned with our streets, our roads, our buses, and uh, not even our buses, really, but I mean our streets, sidewalks, sewers, this sort of thing. Emery spent $10,000 of his own money to stop the Pan Am Games, plus another $3,000 in private contributions. Most of the protests took the form of postcards that were mailed to federal sports minister Otto Jelinek. Mark wasn't in from day one on that. I think he sensed a, a groundswell of opposition and he, he brought up, he became the focus of it, he made himself the focus of it, and, 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 and fair enough. But to say that he generated the opposition I think would be inaccurate. Working together to protect our tax money, we can do something and, it, and it's, it, my biggest job is not let the people get cynical. They have to be firm in their belief that something can be done and there is still a lot of time so we can do a lot. It was one time Emery would be right. The bid for the Pan Am Games received its death blow in June of 1985 when Ottawa slapped a five-year freeze on federal sports funding. We are not quitters and therefore we are not prepared to quit on this at this time. We are going to request an immediate meeting with Mr. Jelinek. We are going to request a meeting with the Ontario government officials. I would expect that there should have been some advance warning and some advance information so that uh, at least we could have had an opportunity of presenting our case. The bid committee has a lot of time to go and get that money through lotteries and private sponsorships. I think it's still possible and I, I've offered to help. They've got a thousand dollar pledge from me already, should that be the case. Well that's great news, Kathy. I can't we managed to lobby three levels of government and, and uh, halt the spending of 110 million tax dollars on London's hosting the 1991 Pan Am Games. So we were almost uh, taken aback by our own success. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And that was from the late Chris Doty's 1992 documentary on Mark Emery, which was called Messing Up the System and which featured uh, a lot of issues that Mark Emery was involved with. And uh, that was myself in that documentary. You heard Pat O'Brien, who was then city councillor, of course, later on went on to be an MPP. Um, or an MP rather, and uh, Orlando Zampronia, Gordon Hume, who's still there today and no doubt is uh, probably going to f work towards getting these things to southern Ontario and to London again this time around. Then m Municipal Councillor Pat O'Brien, who, who you know, he, I think he missed the vote entirely when he said that Mark Emery merely sensed a groundswell and, and to say that he generated the opposition was inaccurate and he just became the focus of all that. Uh, that's not exactly the way it happened because I don't think uh, O'Brien was aware of what actually happened prior to the debate. It all began in June 84 when uh, then Freedom Party Action Director Mark Emery sent a letter to the editor of the London Free Press which, which was critical of London City Council's attempt to host the 1991 Pan Am Games in London. The event would have cost municipal, provincial and federal taxpayers over 110 million dollars I think was the estimated amount in 1984 dollars. The Free Press edited 
all of the most pertinent facts from Emery's letter, and of course that gets him gone, since the paper was clearly on the side of London's hosting the games for obvious reasons. So Emery printed 15,000 copies of his letter unedited in a pamphlet format and began distributing it personally door-to-door himself. And then the letter encouraged Londoners to write letters themselves to the London Free Press and to call their municipal representatives. Well, sure enough, where previously there were none, within two months, over 50 letters of support for Emery showed up in the pages of the Free Press, prompting the media to focus some attention on his efforts. City councillors were swamped with calls protesting the tax finance games. You have no idea how big this was. I've still got it all documented. While Emery himself received over 100 calls of encouragement. So by October 84, Freedom Party officially joined in the fray, and Emery printed an eight-page, much more sophisticated brochure, which Freedom Party helped him deliver to over 45,000 single-family households in the city. And response to the campaign was generated so quickly that by November, our first issue of the No Tax for Pan Am newsletter was printed to keep respondents updated and informed as to developments on the issue. I think we had over 1,100 subscribers and we only had six issues because we beat the issue and we didn't have to publish anymore. Uh, But by this time I personally assumed the role of uh, chairman of the No Tax for Pan Am Committee, a position from which I could effectively deflect arguments that were trying to paint Emory as a quote one-man band and all that stuff, you know, out to make a political reputation for himself. Despite the fact that uh, the No Tax for Pan Am Committee was the only group offering any documented evidence of the support behind it. In fact, every straw poll taken on support for tax funding the games averaged a 75% opposition rate. And, uh, you know, a year later, we had 1,100 subscribers to our newsletter, raised a couple of thousand dollars from subscribers, and, of course, Emory had to kick in 10 grand of his own money to the campaign, mostly to cover the printing costs of, of that brochure. Our fourth newsletter, mailed to supporters, contained two cards addressed to government reps, One was to Gordon Walker, who was the MPP at the time, and the other was to Otto Jelnick, who happened to be Federal Minister of Fitness and Amateur Sport at that time. And it was Jelnick, of course, who was ultimately the minister responsible for calling a halt to the federal funds being used uh, for Pan Am 91. And it wasn't long afterwards that London City Council conceded defeat on the proposal. Now, some of the pertinent facts in the campaign... Londoners would have been forced to pay $10 million in local taxes and would have been asked for an additional $10 million in fundraising and would have been expected to cover the costs of inflation. Think about this when this bid comes up again, which was to have been paid between 1984 and 1997. And th- this vague spending formula conceals a frightening scenario when one considers that the $88 million, 1984 dollars to be collected is dispensed with, in a single line appearing in the preliminary bid book, book booklet, said Emery in his original pamphlet. And then there's the Canadian Olympic Committee, which operates on the most bizarre standard in selecting a Canadian bid that one could imagine, wrote Emery. He said they actually have a mandate to select a city that does not have any major facilities, thus requiring that city to build them. So despite the fact that over 10 Canadian cities already had the necessary facilities at that time to host such an event, The COC regards this as a handicap. Taxpayers are being robbed, said Emery. Why are we being asked to build stadiums when the stadiums in other cities are vastly underused? The Citizens' uh, door-to-door brochure that was delivered to London Homes was called the the London Citizens' Guide to the Tax-Paid 1991 Pan Am's uh, Games Bid and was researched and written by Mark Emery, of course. 
And on its front cover was this editorial cartoon uh, depicting the taxpayer in a Roman-style arena being fed to the lions with the words higher taxes, deficits, and never-ending payments written on their sides. And uh, with their thumbs all pointing down and, and uh, who are in the image and likeness of the then city council, uh, you had all these Romans in the Colosseum, they're all pointing their thumbs down. Eh? And they, the artists did a pretty good likeness of, of um, city council at the time. And of course at the top of the heap was Emperor Al Gleason, London's then mayor, fiddling while London was burning. And under the cartoon it read, let the games begin. If I get time, I might put that cartoon onli online on our site later on in the week, so you might want to check it out. And it was an incredibly effective image, which I'm sure went a long way toward helping us frame the issue in the taxpayer's mind from the very outset. And um, coupled with the financial facts and history of the city's performance on other multi-million dollar projects, any person who read the brochure wouldn't, couldn't help but arrive at the conclusion that spending millions on a two-week sporting event was an outrageous proposal and really shouldn't be pursued, at least not for that reason. Let's be honest about it. And here were some of the facts. That, you know, here, here's a city rushing into a Pan Am bid, and here were, here were the facts that they had at that time. Okay? Here, here is how they listed their revenues. Uh, city of London's tax contribution, $10 million minimum. Provincial government's contribution, unknown. Federal government's contribution, unknown. Provincial lotteries, unknown. Money to be raised from the community, unknown. So with four out of five unknowns, they still went in at it. Now here were the knowns, here were the things we knew about the costs. Olympic swimming pool, 10 million. 35,000 seat stadium, 18 million. Field house, 22 million. Operating costs, 20 million, assuming 10 million in revenue, so let's say 30 million. Endowment fund, 10 million. Contingency fund, 5 million. Upgrading of existing facilities, 3.5 million. And then, of course, Mark put into the brochure a history of the city's other white elephants, including Centennial Hall, London Regional Art Gallery, Talbot Square, Grand Theatre, Centennial Museum, Lawson, Lawson Museum, and many others, where he just, told, just showed you the budgets and how they consistently lose money and to what degree. So uh, you can see we might be in for another round of this, history repeating itself. If that should happen, we'll certainly pursue that more. Now, just to take one last look at it before we come back after this and talk about some weather warnings from the health care uh, department, so to speak. Uh, one more last look at Jim Chapman's show, looking at it from the taxpayer point of view. Again, here is Jim Chapman with uh, Professor Kevin Walmsley. And when we return after this break, we'll be talking about the weather and your health. So from, from the point of view of that taxpayer then, what's the advantage to having the Olympics come to your area? Well, you know, we're living in an era, the last 20 years or so, of extreme government cutbacks. Our roads are suffering, our hospitals, our education uh, programs are suffering, our buildings are sometimes falling apart. And, and civic boosters really see this as an opportunity to, to get government funds, you know, a, an opportunity that they wouldn't normally have from the federal government of Canada, for example. Mm -hmm. so, Here's a chance where we can put Canada on the map, and at the same time, we can have all this infrastructure built for us, highways, buildings, sports facilities, these kinds of things. But in fact, we're still paying for those, too. Oh, absolutely. It looks like it's free money, but sure. like anything from the government, You will not. pay for Vancouver's facilities, in part. Inside. 
You know, the, the weatherman's been wrong many times about rain, but he's never been wrong about these dry spells. Oh, how long? How much longer? He can't even pick a date. That's how long. Well, what are the poor florists going to do and the farmers? You know, this is the longest we've been without rain for as long as I can remember. Yeah, and that's a long, long time. <laughs> I beg your pardon. Oh, uh, no, no, I'm not. that's not what I meant, Mrs. Brown. What I meant was, hi. Ah, mad dogs and Englishmen, huh? I beg your pardon, sir. What are you two doing out in the noonday sun? Haven't you heard about our heat wave? Well, that's what we were just talking about. Oh, what are we going to do about my poor little flowers, Martin? No matter how much water you use, the, the sun draws it up. A few more days and we'll be a disaster area. Is the word for the day, isn't it? They just, they just love using the word disaster. And, of course, uh, it seems that our health care you know, groups and organizations are joining uh, the eco-fascists, as I like to call them. Here we go again, outrageous assertions to keep us in this state of high anxiety. And, uh, you know, they're saying that changes in weather and climate are, you know, they're calling them disasters and calamities, when in fact our past reviews of the history of climate, including some rather startlingly rapid changes, clearly show that this is not the case, even though it may have caused lifestyle and income changes in the economies of human beings. For sure it does that. It is to these natural lifestyle changes that the Green Movement objects. They prefer forcing a primitive lifestyle on all of us in order to keep us from adjusting naturally. It's almost kind of funny in a way. Now, the eco-movement is being joined by the healthcare establishment, which is yet another bastion of anti-capitalist mentality, which therefore has a lot in common with the Greenies. By the way, our healthcare system was rated dead last. Did you notice that? For waiting lists and times here in Canada, we can't beat Europe or anybody. So that, that's, uh, there you go. And uh, so it should come really as no surprise to read that, quote, climate change health warning issued in the August 1st London Free Press. The findings of this assessment suggest the need for immediate action to buttress efforts to protect health from current climate hazards, reads uh, the Health Canada report, as reported by Steve Rennie, Canadian Press. A major Health Canada report is warning of a rash of health problems across the country as the planet's climate changes, ranging from more heat-related illnesses and death to outbreaks of previously unknown infectious diseases. And we're even going to get the ones we don't know about, and they know that. You know, they know that we're going to get the unknown. Um, <laughs> a 500-page report released urges the federal government to act immediately to grid the nation for an onslaught of climate change calamities. The report forecasts more frequent heat waves will increase the number of heat-related illnesses and deaths and lead to more respiratory and cardiovascular disorders. Habitual bouts of extreme weather, such as droughts, violent storms, heat waves and cold snaps, are expected to carry a higher risk of injuries, illnesses and stress-related disorders. So I guess that would mean that countries that experience changes in seasons must be particularly susceptible to these, these risks. Eh? when in fact it's exactly the opposite. Uh, air pollution, including higher levels of ground-level ozone and increased production of pollens and spores, will exasperate asthma symptoms and allergies. The report also says that uh, all, that all will lead to more heart attacks, strokes, and other cardiovascular diseases. You know, they don't really name them or draw a line, but boy, it's Panicville here. Communities in Canada's north were singled out as being the most vulnerable to climate change. Avalanches and landslides predicted to become more commonplace. And northern communities also will have to grapple with food shortages and less clean drinking water. 
why? When the weather warms up, you'd think there'd be more food. That's the way the world works. doesn't work the other way, unless they're talking about us cooling down, but then it doesn't fit into their theory. So I don't know. Neither, neither theory works. Speaking to reporters at the Conservative Caucus retreat in rural Quebec town of Levi, Health Minister Tony Clement said Canadians will have to get used to the gloomy scenario laid out in the report. This report makes it clear if you have bad health outcomes now, you're likely to be more impacted by extreme weather events than if you're at the top of the health ladder, he said. And then to join the chorus here, we have another one from, again, the London Free Press. CMA predicts sharp rise in air pollution deaths. Uh, And they said it's going to be 800,000 of us are going to die by 2031 because of pollution. Get that. Uh, Out of Ottawa, this is out of August 14th Free Press, a major medical report is warning again the number of deaths related to air pollution is set to soar in the coming decades, with a cumulative death toll of 800,000 Canadians by 2031. A study released by the Canadian Medical Association says smog will also drain billions of dollars from Canada's economy and healthcare system in medical costs and lost productivity. Roughly 21,000 Canadians, mostly seniors, will die this year from a combination of short and long-term exposure to air pollution, the report says. It forecasts annual death toll will rise 83% to 39,000 deaths a year by 2031. The majority are expected to die from heart and lung conditions caused by years of breathing dirty air. Asked how doctors can be certain deaths from heart and lung disease are directly related to air pollution and not to, say, smoking, the CMA said researchers had the tools to distinguish the causes of death, though, of course, they didn't give any, any examples or any, even a concept of that. The CMA report comes less than two weeks after a major health Canada study. Gee, you think they get together on these things and maybe release them at the same time? Uh, which also warned of a jump in health problems. UWO professor Gordon McBean, one of the authors of the Health Canada report, said the CMA report jibes with the existing science. The numbers, to me, were not a surprise, he said. They were consistent with other numbers I'd heard. Federal NDP leader Jack Layton said the study highlights the need for urgent action to cut greenhouse gas emissions and pollutants, end quote. And uh, what, to cut CO2, uh, clean gas? It doesn't hurt anybody. We've got to do that because people are going to have lung disease. They don't even know what pollution is. That's how absurd it is. And, of course, the Fraser Institute, of course, noted all of this, the CMA's hot air on air pollution, writes Diane Katz in the National Post on August the 16th. Fortunately, the CMA's research methods, or sorry, yeah, are, oh, fortunately, yeah, uh, are fatally flawed and their alarming assertions largely meaningless. The association has wildly exaggerated the health effects of air pollution and inflated its, inflated its economic impacts. The CMA findings are the result of a computer model originated by the Ontario Medical Association in 2000. See, they don't tell you this when they print these stories, do they? Major revisions were made to apply the software. By the way, this is the same as global warming. eh? They do these software programs, which are completely wrong, completely wrong. Uh, Major revisions were made to apply the software to all 10 provinces and the three territories in Canada. But the likelihood of error in computer modeling increases in proportion to the multitude and complexity of variables and algorithms. Consider, for example, the sheer number and type of assumptions that would have to be made to predict not just mortality rates, presumably related to air pollution, but also the number of visits to doctor's offices and emergency rooms, hospital admissions, and some 16 other specific categories of health effects experienced by 30 million people. Researchers assumed 
that the risk of illness would not vary among the provinces. They also assumed that the level of pollution would hold constant for 20 years and not change at all, which of course isn't, isn't what's happened at all. And uh, this is preposterous, of course. Just retiring older cars will considerably improve air quality. Emissions have declined dramatically in the past two decades and will continue to decrease as regulation and wealth creation drive development of new technologies. The most problematic aspect of the CMA's research is the assumption, and this is interesting, that air pollution kills. So they don't even accept that assumption on that level, that the air pollution kills. But hundreds of studies on the health effects of air pollution offer mixed results. For all the publicity generated by the CMA report, it is curious that the association offers no policy recommendations. Thus, we are left to wonder about the association's motivation in undertaking this quasi-research. Whatever its intended purpose, the CMA report should be treated with the deference it deserves, i.e., none. And that's where the quotes end on that article. Now, you know, intended purpose? Hmm, wonder what that could be. You know, they, you know, they always say follow the money, right? That's it, what it's all about, getting money from the taxpayer, create a panic and get the government to panic and be able to respond to some problem, even though it's just on some computer screen somewhere, and uh, get the taxpayer to fork over his money to solve the problem on the computer screen, you see. And we fall for it. It works. It seems to work because look at the money they're pouring into a, into a health care system that isn't delivering what it should be delivering, especially for the money we're paying for it. Um, you know, to use alarmism and, and, and visions of Armageddon and meaningless statistics to rationalize your existence. I mean, that's, wouldn't it be far easier just to demonstrate how socialized medicine kills <laughs> rather than to draw a straight line from pollution to death? A lot of pollution, too, you know, is people think it's all artificially created. A lot of it's very natural. And we fail to realize that. And I think most of the pollution we're dealing with nowadays, we don't, we, we don't like to call it pollution when it's natural, but it's still pollution because it bothers us. Um, pollen is very natural, but it's considered pollution. And, um, you know, I have a clip somewhere. I wish I've got to find it and digitize it and let you hear it sometime. I actually got off the Space Network a long time ago, just a little news clip they put on about uh, how some people are arguing that the increase in asthma, for example, in North America is largely caused by the way we landscape. Too many uh, gardeners and landscapers are planting all male trees and not enough female trees. And uh, female trees are absolutely necessary to draw the pollen out of the air. They're almost like a magnet, and they demonstrated this visually. It was just stunning. And uh, sure enough, you know, landscapers, they don't like to put female plants around because they drop seeds and cones and stuff that you have to clean up so they like the male plants better and what that does is just release tons of literally tons of polluting pollen and uh, so I think in that sense we might have to get a little more natural and put some female plants around because man do they keep the pollen out of the air but uh, that's just another factor of that and then uh, of course the one thing we definitely don't need is this and that's government financed and sponsored health care terrorism, which I think is what we're getting here. Now that about does it for the show for me this week. had a call during the show today. Uh, someone called off the air and w wondered if I was going to discuss the uh, 
the financial crisis that's going on uh, south of the border now. Discussed it very briefly a few weeks ago, but certainly I'm going to be talking about that again. So you hang in there. I can't guarantee whether it'll be next week or the week after, because with the election on, I think we'll be talking at some point also about the Canadian and um, American elections in the near future. This is certainly a strange Canadian election, to say the least, it seems to me, from where I'm sitting right now, that the Liberal Party is completely imploding. And uh, whether that'll still be the case a week or two from now, when I talk about it a little more, uh, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But between now and then, I hope you have a good week. We're going to close it off now, and I hope you'll join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. Take care. Fade into color Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright So I'll tell you about myself, I'm a twin I have a twin brother When I find this out, they always say the same dumb thing They're like, so can you, can you pick up each other's thoughts and stuff? Yeah, pal yeah, Oh, there he is now And he thinks you're an idiot it's a good thing I'm not part of a triplet, you know. I guess I'd have to have thought waiting or something. It's a good thing I'm not part of a triplet, you know. I guess I'd have to have thought waiting or something. <laughs>